I legit once found a wad of chewed gum in a roll of toilet paper. Like on the production floor, like I guess somebody spit out or their wad of gum fell out by accident onto the production line. So I don't know. You can imagine like your brain like, oh yeah, the, the machine is doing shit. Yeah, exactly. Let's not tell anybody because that would probably be very complicated. Have to hit the stop line on everything and yeah, yeah. it's just one chewed wad of spearmint gum. It'll be fine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to this new episode. We are back once again. I feel like now we're back. This is home. Yes. And now we have to stop and wait for the train to roll through my village. (laughs) There we go. He was reasonable. He only leaned on the horn once or twice. Yeah. So it's all good. So... We recorded yes for last week's at my job, which is great. But like, I feel like my walk-in closet is the podcast home. Yes. It just, it's cozier. It just, it feels more comfortable for all that. So it it feels like we're back. Yes. And now we're back to normal. Looking at Elisa's clothes and smelling bounce, if I could smell anything. Yes, this is true. Elisa's clothes, bunch of crap that she doesn't know what else to do with it. The leg brace from when she, oh, there you go. Dan can have my leg brace from when I jacked up my knee if he needs it for his. So I'll let him know. Okay. So we are going to dive into stories for this week. We don't think that they are related in any way, so we're going to have some fun uh, trying to find connections. Yeah, I, I seriously doubt. Although, you know, you there's know. been the loosest, you know, strings of connecting in the past. Yeah, the Trojans. So. True. That was particularly inspired, if I do say so for myself. You do. <laughs> and I do, because I named it. <laughs> it was really good. So, uh, we talked about it, and you went first last week, so I'm going to go first this week. And uh, my story is something I am very passionate about, and I've been looking forward to being able to do this for quite some time. And so, my question for you is, do you ever have trouble falling asleep? Uh, sometimes, yes. Well, I have a cure for you. It's bulletproof. Netflix is currently streaming two collections of Bob Ross videos from his show, The Joy of Painting. And I fucking love it. It is so soothing and so pretty and it gets so deep sometimes and it's definitely worth checking out. So I wanted to know more about this master of all things painting and joyful and so my rabbit hole for this week was Mr. Bob Ross himself. So I got a bit of a biography here. It's more kind of like a walk through his life and his show and um, I learned so much and it brought me joy just to learn about Bob Ross. So I am looking forward to sharing the story with others. He was born October 29th, 1942. His father was a carpenter and his mother was a waitress, and his parents divorced, married new people, split from those people, and then got remarried. And the second marriage happened when Bob was a teenager. As a kid, Bob loved taking care of wild animals, which if you've seen any of his show, you know, because he brings furry little friends and other creatures onto the show. Uh, And that started in his childhood. He dropped out of high school in grade nine to support himself as a carpenter, and he worked alongside his dad. But that ended fairly quickly because he lost the tip of his index finger in a carpentry accident, so he couldn't do that anymore. And so having to support himself, he decided to join the U.S. Army, which he did when he was 18 years old, and he enlisted as a medical records technician. And then the Army relocated him from Florida, where he was born and raised, to Alaska. Wow. That's (laughs) about as far away as you could get. In a whole lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. So many. (laughs) So he married while he was in Alaska in 1965 when he was 23, but they divorced 12 years later. But he did have one child with his first wife, and that's Steve, who would later work alongside his dad as a painting instructor and appeared on his dad's show a couple of times. 
So he split with his first wife in 1977 and remarried later that same year. And they remained married until her death in 1992. And they had two children together, Morgan and Bob Jr. In one of the few interviews that Ross gave, and we'll talk about that kind of dynamic in a little bit, he said he didn't like being in the army because he didn't like what it turned him into, which was a tough guy and a yeller. And he was apparently such a a drill sergeant style person that he earned the nickname bust em up Bobby from his colleagues. Wow. Yeah. Which is the polar opposite of how most of us would associate. Yes. And exactly to that point, he promised himself that when he left the army, he would never yell again. And see, at least his public persona matched that feel. He served in the army for 20 years uh, and he left in 1981. And when he resigned, he had the rank of Master Sergeant. So while he was up in Anchorage, he learned to paint at the USO club that was there at the time, but he didn't like the rigid rules-based teaching that his instructors insisted on. So the missing link between those early painting lessons and the Bob Ross that we all know is a TV show by an artist named Bill Alexander. And Bill's show was called The Magic of Oil Painting. On that show, Bill used a technique called alla prima, which means first attempt in Italian, and it's better known as wet-on-wet painting. The term wet-on-wet comes from the fact that you literally lay different layers of paint, one on top of the other on the canvas, without giving the lower layers a chance to dry. So you're constantly picking up other shades, and it's kind of the opposite of what normal oil paintings do. The technique actually originated in the 15th century in Flanders and was used by artists like Caravaggio, Cezanne, and Claude Monet. So Bob is the most well-known modern artist who uses it, but it's been around for a while. So taking this new technique, Bob started painting Alaskan wilderness scenes on gold mining pans and selling them. He also became an art teacher up there because people liked what he was doing so much and he was becoming more and more famous for it. And it got to the point where he was making more money with his art and teaching than he was in the army. So he just quit the army. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? Exactly. (laughs) Now a civilian, Ross moved back to Florida in the early 1980s and became a student of Bill Alexander, the guy who had the, um, the magic of oil painting television show. And Bill taught him how to perfect this wet-on-wet technique that Bob Ross became so famous for. Fun fact, money was tight, uh, so Ross stopped getting that traditional weekly army crew cut haircut that he have has, and instead grew out his hair and permed it, because he was too cheap to keep paying for regular haircuts. So this whole image that we have of Bob Ross really comes down to the fact that he was um, pinching pennies. <laughs> so his fro was just for that reason. It started off that way. Uh, Later in life, he regretted that because it was driving him crazy and he didn't like the cut very much, Uh, but he couldn't get rid of it because it's what everyone knew him for. (laughs) Um, uh, The Smiths, not The Smiths, Cure, The Lead Singer of The Cure. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing, right? He has that sort of very signature hair. Okay. We'll have to show it to you later. Yes, because I don't know who you're talking about. Um, And then he, it just looks very messy. Like, it's all like, Bird's nesty. Okay. Um, and then he did do a little bit of where he sort of went with a neat, and people revolted. So now he's back. <laughs> he also is one. Of, he was one of the first artists that Max Mac Cosmetics originally made eyeliner for. Oh, the guy liner. Yeah. Craze started with this guy. Oh yeah, he's been doing it for a long time. And then him and um, Matt, um, Marilyn Manson are both Mac Cosmetics sort of spokespeople almost. Hmm. They make eyeliner that will not sweat off on stage. Hmm. Good to know. So we were... So where we last left Bob Ross, he had quit the army. He was too cheap, so he has his fro rocking. And he's now living back in Florida. To support himself, Ross took a job with the Alexander Magic Art Supplies Company as a traveling salesman and a tutor. So once again, Bill Alexander, it's his company. Bob is kind of a mentor-mentee relationship with them, and so he goes to work for him. In that job, one of his students, a woman named Annette Kowalowski, was a fan of his work and his approach. Even then, he had a soft, soothing voice and a gentle style and focused on happy accidents rather than mistakes. So it was really landed with Kowalowski. 
She convinced him that she could package the experience of him teaching a class and make a fortune with him and from him. And Ross was kind of into it. Uh, Kowalowski and Ross and his then wife went all in on the deal. They all sunk all of their life savings into this to try to make it a go of it. How the joy of painting happened is still something of a mystery, but there are two stories circulating of how we ended up with this television show. The first is that Bob filmed a TV commercial with Bill Alexander and the right PBS network executive just happened to see it and liked Bob and wanted Bob and not Bill Alexander. And so gave him a show. There's also this theory floating around that Kowalowski filmed one of his 30 minute painting lessons and sent it to PBS as a demo reel where a network executive liked it so much that they greenlit a pilot. And in fact, it could be a combo of both. The Joy of Painting, for which Bob Ross is so well known, was on the air between 1983 and 1994. It aired on PBS, but also on some stations in Canada, Latin America, and Europe. And though the show seems casual, it is meticulously planned. So from the very first episode, Ross decided that he'd like to talk to the camera as if he were talking to one person and giving them a private lesson. The studio was bare so that the painting would stand out. Ross, this is funny, picked his wardrobe so that it would be timeless and not, quote, date the show. But he's rocking a fro, so I don't know what he was thinking with that, but... (laughs) The palette he used is lightly sanded so as to not reflect the studio lights, and the halves of the brushes that he uses are covered with duct tape for the same reason. And the same limited number of colors and tools are always used to encourage people to start painting without having to lay out a huge investment to get started. So while each show is seemingly spontaneous, there was always a plan for each one. Before the episode, Ross would paint a picture that would be on set, but just out of view so that he could refer to it as he went with his own. During the episode, Ross would paint the picture as he went, and they really did it in just 30 minutes, no cuts, no editing, straight through. And then after the episode, Ross would also paint another version of the picture, but this one would be much more detailed and polished, and it would then be photographed for inclusion in his books and training material. So for each painting you see on TV, there's in fact three versions of it kicking around. The finished paintings were generally donated to PBS Studios for part of their fundraising purposes, and he never sold them himself and pocketed the money. In all, The Joy of Painting filmed 403 episodes, and it's now well known for its autonomous sensory meridian responses, or the ASMR style, and also a bunch of his sayings and catchphrases. So there are no mistakes, just happy accidents, happy little trees, as is your favorite. Yeah. Uh, And then my favorite is beat the devil out of it. Whenever he's cleaning the brush, he'll like smack it around and beat the devil out of it. My favorite is the this hour is twenty two minutes like a spoof of it where they're like, Oh the happy accident is like I think it's like a gnome kills another gnome. It's like, oh, a little bit of breath. We're just gonna hide that in the trees. Yes, we are it's just a happy accident. It's just a happy accident. I must find this. That sounds yes. good. Bob Ross was just too good for this world. He was never paid to appear on the TV show and he never sold any of the paintings for personal profit. Weird, right? Like for all the money he could have made from it. He viewed his show as a marketing tool for his painting supply and training business instead. That business eventually made him and Annette Kowalowski millionaires. One estimate puts the value at Bob Ross Inc. around $15 million. Wow. Yeah. Well, right now you could get a Chia Pet, a Pop. Bobbleheads. Yes. A yeah. Funko Pop has... Bob Ross, whatever the Funko Pop thing yeah. they call them. They're not bobbleheads, but they're huge head things. Yep. He didn't want to be a gallery artist and only allowed one public display of his work in his lifetime, and that was at the Cultural Center in Muncie, Indiana, which was the city where the PBS station that he filmed the show was located. It's the only time he was publicly um, on display. And I have a nice quote from him here about uh, kind of a description of why and how he did what he did. He said, quote, I got a letter from somebody here a while back and they said, Bob, everything in your world seems so happy. That's for sure. That's why I paint. It's because I can create the kind of world that I want and I can make this world as happy as I want it. Shoot, if you want bad stuff, go watch the news. (laughs) Now that is timeless. Yes, yes, very much so. Not everyone was a big fan of Bob, though. 
probably his biggest attractor throughout his career was our good old friend Bill Alexander, who taught him what he knew. When Ross went mainstream, Alexander was not shy about shit-talking him into the press and claimed that Ross stole his technique and style and went on to make a fortune with it. Alexander told the New York Times in 1991, quote, He betrayed me. I invented wet on wet. I trained him and he thinks he can do it better. As a reminder, wet on wet is actually alla prima and has been done by much better artists than, I'm sorry, but either Alexander or Ross. Yes as far back as the 1400s. So Bill needs to pull his head out of his ass and read the room. Yeah. So I alluded to the fact that Bob Ross didn't give a whole lot of interviews. So the majority of the information we have on him now has been pieced together over time from a few sources, including what Bob Ross let slip on his show because he was notoriously private. So he said he never gave interviews because no one ever asked. And that's true. For some reason, no one ever really went looking for Bob Ross to interview him to find out. That's weird. Yeah. Like, I guess it was the 80s and 90s. He was a PBS celebrity. Yeah, that's true. So maybe he just wasn't, he was low down on the list of priorities. I I don't know. Uh, One of the rare times he did give an interview, though, he confirmed that he got very few requests, but he also admitted that he wasn't seeking out fame either. He also had a problem with being really low-key himself, like, just as a human being, so much so that PBS lost him once. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they legit just could not find him, and they realized they hadn't heard from him for a few months, and so tried to, and just had no luck finding him. And then he just called them up to make arrangements for the next series of the show and said, oh, by the way, I moved to Orlando a few months ago. (laughs) And, like, had no thought to, like, inform them or leave a forwarding location. The day before cell phones, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So this uh, secrecy extended to the end and then passed at the end of his life. He was diagnosed with lymphoma in the spring of 1994, but only close friends and family knew that he was sick because he continued to do the show after he was diagnosed. The last episode aired in May of 1994, and he died about a year later on July 4th, 1995. Like I said, he had been married to a second wife until her death in 1992, and then... For those three years, he was kind of single. And then two months before he passed away, he married his third wife, which sad. Yeah. But he's buried in Gotha, Florida, under a plaque that simply reads Bob Ross Television Artist. Mm-hmm. Quaint to the point. Since then, his estate has been very private and quiet about having anything to do with his life. And but for that one interview that he gave and the tidbits that he dropped on his show, and a brief but now out-of-circulation documentary that PBS produced on him while he was alive as part of a pledge drive, not much else is really known about him or ever really likely to be known about him. So, though he's been gone for more than 20 years, his legacy endures. If you don't believe me, I invite you to pop over to bobross.com. And this is the official website and estate uh, of Bob Ross. There you can buy painting supplies, merch, books, coloring books. There's even free how-to projects. You can sign up for a newsletter and you can be trained to become a certified Bob Ross teacher. So Bob Ross Inc. is still rolling. Like I said, there's a Bob Ross Chia Pet. I almost bought it for you one year. (laughs) The how-to project pages will provide you with a list of materials that you'll need, how to prepare your canvas, and then step-by-step instructions on each layer of the painting and what um, the next layer needs to look like. Netflix only has episodes that show landscapes, but his project pages also have florals and wildlife canvases. So I would encourage Netflix to get off their ass and post another series of episodes. There is, a, I think it's on YouTube, it's a collection. It's like mm-hmm. him peeling contact paper. Yeah. That was very... Uh... It's very soothing. Yes. <laughs> It makes sense to look at Bob Ross's website now because the show was all about promoting Bob Ross Inc. It's how he made his money. And so the products that are for sale are the main focus of the website. And they aren't shy about wanting to pimp those out. You can buy kits, equipment, paints. They have mystery boxes, which I almost picked one up just for the fun of it, but didn't quite get there. 
DVDs and books, basically everything you need to be a wet-on-wet painter, but it's not cheap. If you want the ultimate Bob Ross painting package, which includes a standing easel, 1.25 ounces of each of the 12 paint colors that he uses, all his branded brushes and knives, the liquid bases, the brush cleaner, a palette, six canvases, and paint cleaning equipment, you have to get ready to shell out over $800. Well, it's an expensive hobby. Yes. Every hobby is expensive in some way. True. There is also a vibrant Facebook community uh, that's linked to the official Bob Ross website that is full of full of news and um, those wine mom quotes of like his paintings with like his quotes on top of it. So speaking of which, uh, he was a goddamn philosopher, Andy. <laughs> oh, please do tell. Oh, I have several quotes here. Practice a little and just believe in yourself. Yeah, pour one out for a homie. It uh, it applies everywhere. You know me, I think everybody needs a friend. They're the most important commodity in the world. When all else leaves you, your friends are still there, if they're true friends. Yeah, yeah. He was probably talking about a tree when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> when someone's cut the rest of your friends down. <laughs> uh, believe that you can do it. See it in your mind. See it finished before you ever start. That whole visualization fits everywhere. Fits with what we're going to do after. Yes, our vision boarding experience. We spend so much of our life walking around looking, but never, never seeing. Oh, wow. I got to the... I know. I feel like I should have sparked one up to read that. <laughs> really let it sink in. The secret to doing anything is believing that you can do it. And he would literally just drop these nuggets casually into the show. Like, fuck, man, it's deep. <laughs> but let's take a step back. Why the fuck is a goddamn painting show from the 80s and 90s a cult classic and have such a consistent following over 20 years since it ended? There's a lot of theories. And I found one article that kind of lays out a bunch of the reasons why. He's just so chill. Like, he shows how easy it is to accomplish something beautifully and quickly with just having a dash of confidence in you. He demystifies what appears to be a complex hobby, a complex experience, and he does it while making his viewers feel comfortable, calm, and included, and he makes it accessible. So like you said, painting's an expensive hobby. It's, it's yeah. true. If you can afford the equipment, though, your skills and abilities aren't what's going to limit you, according to Bob Ross. Yeah. That's what he kind of conveys. All 403 episodes of his show are now available on YouTube, and there is the Netflix collection, which includes about 40 episodes, so it's just, it's prevalent. Like, you can easily yeah. access it. St. Joseph's University uh, photography professor Krista Salva Bonas says, quote, he really empowers his viewers. Uh, Krista was saying that she made horrible paintings, but he did make her feel like anything was possible. So again, that accessible nature of it. Because the show appeared on PBS, it was viewing for wide swaths of consumers. There was never going to be anything controversial on that channel, so there was never going to be anything controversial on that show. Yeah. Parents could watch it with kids, with grandparents. Bob himself, with his perm and borderline hippie look, is a non as non-threatening as you can get. And then he opens his mouth, and he's just the kind of human who is reassuring and humble and brings a positive attitude to everything that you do. And so he would often say things like, it's your world, we show you how, but you make the decisions, which is empowering. Yeah. It's, it's a great message to receive. So when I started my story, I was talking about um, he's a great kind of sleep tool. And my love and appreciation for him comes from the fact that he's, to me, a, basically a visual version of sleepy time tea and a couple of melatonin capsules. Uh, and I'm not alone. So Calm.com, which is an app that I've used and use regularly, and it's got a bunch of guided meditations and uh, sleep music and stuff like that, they have gotten very rare permission from Bob Ross's estate to turn some of his episodes into sleep stories. So they just play the audio for it, nice. and you get that kind of experience. And Ross knew that a lot of people found his voice and his show soothing. In one of his rare interviews, he said that some viewers, quote, watch it strictly for entertainment value or for relaxation. We've gotten letters from people who say they sleep better when the show is on. 
And Annette Kowalowski, his business partner who kind of rocketed him to fame, told the New York Times in 2018 that people were embarrassed to tell Ross that they would fall asleep listening to him, but he loved to hear that. So he knew, and he yeah. knew that's where his value was for some people. So if you're a connoisseur of the show, like me, uh, you'll notice that there's a consistent pattern. When the show starts, Ross is chatting away. That's where you get your philosophical bombs and talk about Peapod, his rescue squirrel, and the other animals in his life. And the sound of his voice and the swish of the brush are about equal in terms of volume and regularity. As the episode progresses, Bob's voice gets quieter and gentler, and then he speaks less and less, and he's letting the sound of the brush on canvas fill the audio soundscape. And by the end of the episode, Bob is saying very little and just giving you the key instructions you need for the painting. And he's letting the brush strokes and seeing as he's focused on fine details, they're less aggressive and more gentle. They are the the focus of the audio for that part of the show. If you're still awake at 26 minutes, which, wow, you're almost guaranteed to be out halfway through the next episode. (laughs) Netflix automatically starts playing for you. (laughs) At least I am. Thanks to Bob, and just as a reminder that we don't make mistakes, we just have happy Happy accidents. So I loved putting together that story. Just reading about Bob Ross made me happy. There you go. (laughs) So that was my story for the week. Nice. Well, I'm feeling sleepy just thinking about it. Right? Although I was feeling sleepy to start out with. (laughs) Children are jerks. (laughs) So here's my story. So, again, this came from um, Live Science. They have that weird science tab, and this isn't from the weird, this is from the tech tab. So, radioactive material is commonly used in medicine. (laughs) I know. It's used to detect illness, treat them, uh, and and used in research. Again, I said this is going to be hard to find a link. Yeah. (laughs) One such use is uh, therapeutic nuclear medicine, where doctors use high dose of radiation from materials... And they're either injected or the patient ingests. Ingests the make. Thank you. Um, to treat thyroid disease or to shrink tumors and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. I did not do that when I had my thyroid out because I only had half of it out. Um, but lots of people do when they have their thyroid out because they have thyroid cancer and it kills any of the thyroid cancer. But it also, like, you have to have your both of your both halves of your thyroid out, and it's a whole rigmarole. Like, you, I know someone who had it done about a year after mine and uh she had to live on her own basically for i think it was like six weeks yikes because she's radioactive at least for the first four like they were like she had to drive herself home Mm -hmm. so she was in a room with like her gown on and they came in all like gowned up and they gave her this like lead cup with a straw and she's because she's drinking Mm -hmm. radioactive stuff and then eventually she has to drive home but she has to drive herself home and they, they said, uh, I think they told her to bring bags because if she throws up, she's got to throw up into a bag mm-hmm. and dispose of it because it's radioactive. Right. So she can't just like on the side of the road. Yeah. On the side of the road. Um, her spouse couldn't live with her mm-hmm. for like, I think it was four or six weeks because again, she was so radioactive. They couldn't even be in the same house. Wow. Um, they were supposed to throw away pretty much anything she used. Pots, pans, remotes. Well, I was going to ask, like, what about the car? Like, yeah, so did, they would have to contaminate it? Yeah, clean and stuff like that. And wow. Eventually, over time, it sort of decreases, like, because it has a half-life. Um, but in this story, uh, doctors, uh, therapeutic muti- nuclear medicine uh, doctors had given an Arizona patient, a 69-year-old male cancer patient a radioactive treatment to hopefully shrink some tumors he had. Sadly, the treatment was not successful and he died two days later. Hmm. Five days later, his body was cremated. Oh, no. And this is at the point where my rabbit hole starts. Right. So the cremation of a radioactive body spreads radioactive particles all over the crematorium and and puts workers at risk. Yeah. Because the nuclear medicine team was not notified of the burial plans, they could not warn of the dangers. So somehow this was figured out. The article was really vague on how the investigation started, but then researchers started an investigation on the radioactive fallout of this. Yeah. So this mistake happened and they they went in to investigate. Fallout is a good word. (laughs) The fallout of it. But again, I'm not entirely sure how, like, this was figured out and they were like, oh shit, we should probably look at this. (laughs) 
what they found was a significant amount of radiation on the oven, vacuum filter, and bone crusher. There's a couple of words in there that I didn't realize humans had invented. And, uh, makes sense, but it makes me a little sad. Yeah, so, um... Bone crusher basically does what it sounds like. <laughs> Crushes up the any of the larger pieces pieces that the that the fire did not get because yeah. these ovens burn ridiculously yeah, hot, right? For very long. For very long amounts of time. They also tested the urine of the employees and found trace amounts of radiation. Hmm. Luckily for the employees, they were not exposed to a dangerous amount of radiation at the time. But because it was just like a one-time exposure. But what researchers ain't able to pinpoint is how often this is happening. Right. Yeah. Because this is a very common, like, radioactive material used in medicine is ridiculously common. Yeah. Um, And some of the, as I learned later, some of the radioactive particles can take up to two years to dissipate. Uh, Some are just three months, some are six months, some Mm. are... So it depends on how long from when that person was treated to when they pass away, depending mm-hmm. on what you can do with their bodies. So um, researchers do uh, feel that this is happening more commonly than anybody is realizing. And they do argue in their uh, paper that safety protocols for radioactive medicines should take into account the possibility of death and the cremation of patients. Yeah. So I guess in the States it doesn't. In Canada, though, we do have detailed rules. Okay, good. Uh, around the cremation of radioactive remains. Okay. Uh, but in the U.S., the only s- there's only one state that really does. And can you guess what state this is? Jersey, Florida. Oh, Florida's doing something right for us. <laughs> I figured Jersey had so many uh, nuclear sites they would have put two and two together much earlier. So that was sort of this little article that was about this paper that had just been published about this research and how really more safety protocols and Mm -hmm. the safety protocols for radioactive medicine, radio uh, nuclear medicine should take an account of what happens to a body after, after it perishes. I read some of the rules in Canada and they're pretty detailed about, so again, it breaks it down into the different types that are used and how long it takes. Right. But Generally, the rule of thumb is uh, when they're cremated in Canada, they don't use the bone crusher. Um, There's certain things that they don't use. They're gloved. Obviously, they're um, in protective gear. They stay away from the body as much as possible. They said in autopsies, they use more like tongs and stuff to take out organs that might have been directly um, affected by it. So Mm -hmm. if you're doing like a dye to see or shrinking those tumors. Um, And also... Basically, the rule of thumb is you can't spread the remains for two years. Oh. It breaks it down a bit better. Like, there's one that's three months after. So if the person um, died two months after they had X procedure, then you could wait a month. But anyways, the the rule, I guess the longest one is two years. So that's, I guess, the rule of thumb. Wow. And then they they cannot be kept in certain types of jars. They have to be kept in ceramic, or not ceramic, um, stainless steel. Wow. I just put it in lead, but anyway. <laughs> I'm sitting here, my aunt passed from cancer, and one of the reasons why she passed so quickly after diagnosis was that she went through a little chemo and then decided it wasn't for her. So I'm just trying to do the math in my head between how long it was between that treatment to when she died, between when we spread the ashes, uh, and where we spread it was very windy that day. <laughs> And the poor gentleman standing a few meters down from us, who wasn't really paying attention, uh, took a lot of my aunt home with him that day. <laughs> and I took some more home with me. And so I'm trying to do the math here. Yeah. And my aunt would have fucking found that hilarious. <laughs> that she could have potentially ra- made everybody radioactive for a No, that we would have done something that dumb. <laughs> so on brand for my dad and I. <laughs> I think there's probably a skit somewhere of like throwing up and it comes all back in the face. Yep. <laughs> uh, so at the end of this original article was another article on the same site called Top 10 Weird Ways We Deal With Death. Okay. So of course I clicked on it. And this is sort of a more what I consider a true rabbit hole because it goes, starts, and then it goes, goes to different weird places. Yeah. yeah. So. A bunch of these we know a lot about, like mummification. Mm -hmm. So obviously in Western society and in Canada, we cremate or bury. Um, But there's mummification. The mummies of ancient Egypt are probably the most famous dead bodies that are mummified. 
Uh, this was reserved for the members of the upper class. Mummification involved the removal of all organs, including the brain, which was pulled out of the nose by a hook, and the body was then stuffed with dry materials like sawdust and wrapped in linens. The Egyptians believed that mummification preserved the soul for its journey to the afterlife. One of the most interesting documentaries I ever watched as a child, uh, some old lady left her body to science. And when you do that, like, you don't know what you're going to end up as in the process. And she won the fucking lottery as far as I'm concerned, because she, her body ended up going to a project between a historian and a doctor, and they were trying to figure out how the Egyptians mummified their bodies. So she got the full mummification treatment from beginning to end. Cool. And it's not so much that, and this is, yeah, it's not so much that they take the brain out through the nose, as they found out on this documentary. You can't actually do that. What you do is you put the hook up in the nose, and then you treat it like a blender, and you liquefy the brain, and then you roll the body over and it dribbles out. (laughs) Brain scrambling? Yeah. So mummification. If, if. I could end up that way. I would donate my body to science with like a caveat only for mummification purposes, historical purposes. (laughs) So then there's cryogenics. So there's always that rumor about famous people such as Walt Disney Mm -hmm. wanting to have their bodies frozen so they can live again, uh, as it were, so they can live again when we find a cure Cure. for death. (laughs) I don't understand it. I really... Why Why would I want to be unfrozen in a few thousand years and not know what the fuck's going on? Yes. Why would anybody want to free- unfreeze me, even if I was famous? <laughs> like, come on. Still, the best use of an urban legend in any cartoon is that one and Futurama. <laughs> well, yeah, like, I sort of, so I, I reference. So, uh, <laughs> while this, to me, sounds narcissistic and a little sci-fi, mm-hmm. uh, cryonic science is a reality. Soon after dying, participants are stored in liquid nitrogen solutions to prevent decay until the time when death becomes a reversible phenomenon. Until then, bodies remain on ice. Whenever I think about this, I think of the heads in jars in Futurama. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you think that and not Doctor Who? I know. I think... <laughs> I do. I really do. When I think of, like, cryogenics and freezing people, I think of the... <laughs> The jars and heads from Futurama, like Abraham Lincoln, Nixon. Not that any of those people would have been frozen. And Lucy Liu feeding her little fish food. Yeah. (laughs) Polynesian cremation. So contrary, contrary to the more somber Western funerals, cremation ceremonies among the Hindus of Bali have almost a more carnival-like experience. So a little bit more New Orleans Mm -hmm. jazz funeral. Festive floats parade down local streets that accompany the body to the burial ground, where it is transformed onto a ceremonial bowl, a bowl receptacle, and then set alight. Hmm. So they party. This sounds like an interesting option, personally. I think that's pretty cool. But I can't imagine that fire smells nice after a while. Well, I mean, it starts off smelling like barbecue, and then it just smells like all fire, I guess. I guess, yeah. <laughs> ah, this one, next one really creeps me out. It's plastidization so uh, this one creeps me out because you can send your corpse on a tour of museums around the world so this was developed by German scientist Guter von Hagen and his popular uh, body worlds exhibits showcase the controversial preservation technique which involves dissecting the body into bits embalming it with hardening fluid and then repositioning the body into various educational positions yeah poses I didn't realize that was a German thing. I thought it was a Chinese thing, because there was the rumors that they were using political dissidents. No, no, that was a German scientist. It was developed by a German scientist. Who did it? I don't know. Oh, Guter. Yeah, Guter. (laughs) It's probably Gunther, but I'm a little stuffed up today. (laughs) Uh, Neanderthal cave burials. Before they begin interring their dead in the ground properly properly, in quotation marks, around uh, 100,000 years ago, Neanderthals routinely left the deceased deep inside the caves of Europe and the Middle East. Some archaeologists have argued that to Neanderthals, the dark, mysterious recesses of a cave may have seemed like a good place to transfer over to the afterlife. Hmm. Bog bodies. 
So plenty of travelers have perished accidentally crossing the murky bogs of northern Europe. To me, I think of England and especially the movie Woman in Black, which is really creepy and really good. Um, But that's how a bunch of people die in that one. Uh, But at least some... Spoilers. It's been out for like (laughs) 10 years. It was like the first movie he did after Harry Potter. (laughs) At least some individuals, especially in the Middle Age, were buried there carefully and on purpose. So lucky for archaeologists, the chemical makeup of a bog preserves human flesh very well, Mm -hmm. um, allowing them to study these unlucky bog bodies very closely. There is Tibetan sky burials. So in Tibet, you get to fly after you die. Instead of trying to bury bodies in the hard, rocky ground, some Tibetans send their loved ones to the top of a mountain and leave them there to be eaten by vultures. Hmm. The disassembled corpses are even mixed with flour and milk for a tastier treat. They, that's, this makes sure that every bit leaves the earth for good. Well, no. I mean, if... Well, yeah. what do you... No. <laughs> If you, if you eat it, it's not leaving anywhere. <laughs> it's coming back out. Uh, Viking ship burials. And this is what I want, just so you know. <laughs> uh, Middle Age Vikings lived and literally died by the sea. After death, wealthier Vikings were placed in ships filled with food, jewels, weapons, food, and even sometimes servants or animals. Okay, well, you let the cats do their thing. They don't need to come with me. Uh, For their comfort, for the comfort of the wealthier person in the afterlife, the boats were interned in the ground or set alight and sent out to sea. The ultimate post-mortem destination for Viking warriors is Valhalla, or Odin's Hall, made famous by the Old Norse sagas. Mm -hmm. Tree burials. So indigenous tribes in many parts of the world discovered that the best way of disposing of the dead was to put them up high rather than down below. Groups in Australia, British Columbia, and the American Southwest and Siberia were known to practice tree burials, which involved wrapping the bodies in a shroud or cloth and placing the corpse in a crook of a tree to decompose. Hmm. I am looking out the window in my closet at a very lovely crook. Yes, I'll put you there. Sadly enough, that's on the other side of the property line, but uh, do it when they're not looking. That's true. (laughs) Towers of Silence. This sounds metal as fuck. (laughs) Zerotarians, and I even looked this up last night on how to pronounce it, but I'm butchering it now, (laughs) believed that the body is impure and shouldn't pollute the earth after death through burial or cremation. Instead, the deceased are brought to a ceremonial Tower of Silence, usually located on an elevated mountain plateau and left exposed to the animals and the elements. When the bones have been dried and bleached by the sun, they are gathered and dissolved in lime. Hmm. So you said you're, you would prefer a Viking burial. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you on that one or the Polynesian like celebration. Party dance. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. I've heard of most of those things, but I had never heard of Zoroastrian. Zoroastrians, yeah. Yes. And it is not a cult. Have you heard of them? The name sounds familiar. So it's not a cult from the 70s, like I had guessed. Right. But it's actually an ancient pre-Islamic religion of Iran. Okay. Which is still practiced today in some small pockets of Iran and India. Uh, when I started reading about it, I was intrigued. So here we go to my third layer down this <laughs> fucking rabbit hole that I fell down the other night. It's actually the world's oldest monotheatic religion. Okay. That might be why it sounds familiar from high school, but okay. Yeah. So it is the first religion, the oldest religion to really have only one God. Right. And it's also, I say at the end, uh, say towards the end, it's a, it believes a duality, I think it's how it's pronounced. So good evil. Okay. Um, and it's also one of the first ones to believe in that and one God. So it was founded by a prophet Zoacaster in ancient Iran approximately 3,500 years ago. For about a thousand years, it was the most powerful religion in the world, hmm. and it was the official religion of Persia or Iran from 600 BCE to 650 CE. Wow, that is a good long run. Yeah. They believed in one god, Athura Mazda, the wise lord. And he created the world. They believed that the elements were pure and that fire represented God's light or wisdom. And that God had revealed the truth through the prophet. 
They traditionally pray several times a day. They worship communally in a fire temple, and they call their holy book the Avista. Okay. Which also has two parts, an older and a newer section. Oh, look at that. So um, the ancient Greeks saw this religion as the archetype of the dualist view of the world and of human destiny, creating the idea of good and evil, demons and the divine. Mm-hmm. So if a lot of this sounds familiar, it's because it really did lay the foundational blocks for other religions created after. Um, Christianity, um, Judaism, um, modern Islam, modern Islam took this as their foundational. They went in very different ways, mm-hmm. but this was the first one God religion who really did believe in those dual forces of good and evil. Hmm. But even though that they had a lot of power back in the day, now it's the world's smallest religion <laughs> with less than um, two hundred thousand followers worldwide. Most of them are in pockets in India and some still in Iran, but it's very, very remote, very small pockets of believers. Hmm. So that's my rabbit hole. That was quite a deep, tangential rabbit hole. Uh huh. So we started off with radioactive cremation and we ended with one of the most ancient religions. Yes, yes. This is why the internet is a weird and wonderful place. Yes. Isn't it? <laughs> so I started off with that first article and then life science had that sort of like 10 weird ways we deal with bodies. Yeah. And then the last one I was like, zero? <laughs> like, this sounds like a 70s cult. It doesn't it? It does. Um, and it's not. And uh, so then I was intrigued. But they really did believe that the body was impure. So, Well, they're not totally wrong. Yeah. And that <laughs> really should be left to the elements. I'm not. I'm also kind of okay with that. Just... Let some wolves eat me and then yeah, we'll be fine. Call it a day. Throw the rest in a hefty bag. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. So I don't know, like, Bob Ross is no longer with us. <laughs> is that the link? <laughs> Maybe. Is the link the cadmium yellow paint and the cadmium being a, Maybe. a nuclear product? I mean... Death happens to us all, so... Maybe. Happy little accidents... I mean, if you're listening to this, you already know what we choose to name this episode. Yeah. And I wish I had a, a time machine to figure out what we go with, because I yeah. still don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> wow, interesting. Um, I feel like it would take some time to have to absorb all this and make decisions. I know. See, I wonder, so if you're cremating a, a nuclearly reactive body... Does that also not create a fallout from the venting of the furnace? Or I think is it it's so that's small? what the vacuum filter is. Oh, okay. I think that's what the vacuum filter is from. I I kind of assume that it's the it's the vacuum filter, or could that just be for the ash? Because I think the saddest story that kind of sticks with me after our tour of um, Dachau in Germany was Dachau's just barely outside the city. Now it's actually in the city, but then it was just barely. And so after it was liberated, the camp was liberated, the local Munich population reported like, oh, so that's what that ashy fall was. We weren't sure what was happening. So I wonder if the vacuum filter would capture the ash. Maybe. But would it be small and fine enough to capture nuclear particles? I don't know. Hmm. But there is, like, a very detailed, like, 10-page description from whoever oversees nuclear products in Canada on how to Hmm. deal with bodies. And then, like, on the other hand, though, if you just put them in the ground, then you, like, yeah, it eventually dissipates and it's hard and rare to exhume a body, but then you're just sitting on a nuclear little I guess nobody next to them cares because they (laughs) did, too. (laughs) They're not bringing down property value is what you're saying. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting. I never really thought of that, but... Hmm. Yes, now I need to sit and cognitate and ruminate. Oh boy. I'm not even high yet, Andy, and this is really going to throw me for a loop around 8 o'clock tonight. I just know it. I know, I can't (laughs) wait to see what text messages I get now. Well, that is it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, because... I think this is going to be one of my top five so far, at least, for sure. It's, it's a strange rabbit hole that I went down, for sure. <sighs> yeah, between that and the delightfulness that is Bob Ross, I'm going to I'm really enjoy. glad you went first. Me too. I Holy. kind of brought that shit down. All the way. 
So if you would like to learn more about the show, head over to our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. You can find all the back catalog up there as along with our show notes. So you could find Andy's uh, interesting articles that set her off this rabbit hole and read them for yourself and find new wardens to run down. On our website, you can also check out the merch tab where you can head over to our Redbubble store and pick up some merch to wear out in the world to show off your fandom. And the support tab will take you to our Patreon page. You can sign up to become a patron and get access to a bunch of special features just for certain levels um, to show how much we appreciate you. I was listening today to the full run of our theme song. Like we just clipped the beginning and the... Yeah the bridge for our theme song and I was listening to the full piece there this afternoon looking for um, elevator music for lack of a better term for last week's episode and it's a pretty good song we should post it in full Um, Uncle Neptune is the artist so I think delightfully should put it out in the world more for everyone to listen to yeah Uh, if you want to uh, see what we're doing on the socials you can see us on uh, you can find Elise doing with our twitter handle yes. although i did originally i did sign up for twitter recently oh just because i was looking for something specific mm. um not i don't think i'm going to be using it but because i was sick of what you mean you don't like nazis and racists in yeah. your life what i have enough, <laughs> I have enough issues yeah. um you can read you can see us on twitter at rabbit holes pod you can see us on instagram at rabbit holes podcast you can see us on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. And wherever you're listening to us, you could probably give us uh, a review or give us a rate if you like what we're doing. That helps uh, get our visibility out there. And hopefully the next time we record, I will not sound so awful. <laughs> I'm really sick of this cold. I'll give you some of that saline wash that my doctor is telling me is the only thing I'm allowed to put up my nose anymore. I've got it. It's just like, it's just this no crazy bueno. glue. I'm pretty sure this is what the inspiration of crazy glue is. <laughs> like, it's just awful. But yeah. <laughs> so there's only one last thing to do today. And that is to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.